as we begin today, I want to talk today to, to you about what I consider to be a universal human experience. It doesn't discriminate based upon age or gender or race. It's something we're all going to face. And in some ways, it's, it's you know, capsulized in this video you're about to watch from live with Jimmy Kimmel. Watch the screens. So a few years ago, we had an idea for a massive prank that parents could pull on their children. I asked parents to pretend they ate all their kids' Halloween candy, record video of their child's reaction, and upload it to YouTube with the title, Hey, Jimmy Kimmel, I told my kids I ate all their Halloween candy. This is the third year we've done this, and we got an avalanche of great responses this year. It took us the whole weekend to go through them, but we did, and we pieced together some of our favorites. And so without further ado, the candy monster strikes again. Last night, we ate every bit of your Halloween candy. It's all So I'm not putting the disappointment that you face on par with that, uh, but that is not very kind. And, uh, and, and you may have seen a little bit of your reaction at times over the years to disappointment in that video. Uh, my name isn't Nostradamus. I don't predict the future, but I do have two things that I think are going to happen to you this year. And the first one is this, that at some point this year, you'll be disappointed. And the other one isn't much better. You're going to disappoint others. I know it's a great way to begin a Sunday morning, but, but this is the reality of what life looks like when we live with other people, is that we experience disappointment and we give it away to other people. Even here as a church, there's two things I'm going to tell you. It's going to happen this year. The first one is that you're going to disappoint me and I'm going to disappoint you. It's just a guarantee. Now, if those two are, are universal, then, then what begins to separate us is how we respond to disappointment. I think there's a variety of ways that we can respond, and I'm just going to hit on three as you begin this morning. The first way that a lot of us respond to disappointment is we deny it. We go, oh, it wasn't really a big deal. Ah, oh, that's okay. My hopes weren't up at all. This is the one that I struggle with, and I'm, I'm kind of like Kramer or Sheldon here, not, not liking to live in reality. Particularly, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Two years ago, I was serving on staff at a church in Phoenix, and I was in the running to be the next lead pastor there. And they picked somebody else. And in the first few weeks after that happened, um, A, I couldn't tell anybody publicly. 
but B, to the people who did know, I, I just denied it. I didn't really want it anyway. I, you know, I wasn't really sure even if they offered it to me, I would have taken it. It's okay. It's no big deal. Deny. 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 Because I thought that if I denied it, it would actually hurt less. And I was trying to find a way to turn down the pain. A lot of us, when faced with disappointment, we choose denial. Others of us, we get depressed. It just crushes us. Our spirit, our soul. Now, this is not clinical depression. That's an entirely different subject. But some of us, when we get disappointed, it just, it sends us into a tailspin and it's hard for us to pull out of it. And then there are others of us who've had enough of the denial, who've had enough of the depression. And so we just go, I'm done with it all. And we become cynical. We go, hey, the one way to avoid getting disappointed is to have no expectations. If you don't get your hopes up, they can never be crashed. And this is why um, cynicism becomes in some way a cocoon that comes around our hearts where we prevent ourselves from ever being hurt again. As a recovering cynic, I'll tell you, it also prevents you from being loved again. And as a recovering cynic, I can also tell you that behind every cynic is a disappointed idealist. Because at some point, we had hope and we just decided it's not worth it anymore. Once you become cynical. In this series we've been in for the last four weeks called the Emoji Exchange, we've been talking about real life stuff, stuff like uh, shame and addiction and the relationship we have with our fathers and today disappointment. I've always wanted to preach next to like a sad face. Hopefully this isn't like a misnomer for my sermon today. Um, someone did tell me this looks, looks less like a, a tear um, on a face than a teardrop tattoo. If you know what that is, Google it later. Hopefully we're not going that route today. <laughs> but in this series, each week, we've been talking about a real life human experience that we have. And what would it mean for us to exchange that for what's available to us in Jesus Christ? Romans 8 has been our text. I mean, looking at what does it mean for us to abandon and lay down all of these, in some ways, unhelpful experiences and emotions to lay hold of who we are in Christ. And each week we made an exchange. We talked about exchanging shame for God's approval, exchanging our addiction for freedom. Last week it was exchanging the family we were born into with all of its dysfunctions with the family we get to be adopted into in Christ. And then today, week four, this is our big idea. That in Christ, we get to exchange disappointment for hope. We're going to talk this morning about what does it look like to exchange disappointment for hope. Now, one of the big problems with hope is that there's lots of definitions out there of it. For some people, it's hopey, changey stuff. For other people, it's not something worth having. Here's how we're going to define hope today. Hope is a confident expectation in Christ in the face of reality. A confident expectation in Christ, in Jesus, in his character, in his actions, in his promises, in who he is in the face of reality. And so if you've said before, hey, I'm never going to have hope again because that means I have to deny reality, that is not the hope we're talking about today. The hope we're talking about today and we're going to look at in Romans chapter 8 is a confident expectation in Christ in the face of reality. We're not causing you to suspend judgment or just pretend that the world is not the way it actually is. No, this is in the face of reality. 
And this morning, we're going to look at five things that lead to sustained hope. That if we're going to have hope, not just in a moment, but over time, it's going to require these five things. And to do so, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on or scroll down to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 18. Romans is about two-thirds, three-quarters, 80% of the way through the Bible. It's between the books of Acts and 1 Corinthians. And in, in Romans 1 through 7, which we haven't looked at in the series, what Paul does is kind of describes the problem of the human condition, the broken world that we live in, and what Jesus has done for that world for there to be hope. And then in Romans 8, he describes what life looks like for those people who have put their faith in Christ and what he's done for them in that condition. And uh, the first of these five things Paul discusses in Romans 8, verse 18, and it's the word perspective. If you're going to have sustained hope, you're going to have to have perspective. You're going to have to sustain perspective. And here's what Paul means by that word perspective. In verse 18, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So that this is Paul's perspective. He's not ignoring reality because he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time. So he's admitting that there is suffering in this world. There is pain. There is loss. His perspective, though, is not focused and dialed in on that suffering. He says that suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is saying, if you're going to sustain hope, you have to have a perspective that isn't just on the suffering that you're in, but on where you're headed and where you're going. And he, he got, got to this last week, Pastor Tom hit on this in his message, in Romans 8, 17, one verse before, he said that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we also may be glorified with him. But Paul's doing here, for us as Americans, because this, this letter wasn't written to us. It was written to the Romans in the first century. What Paul's doing to us Americans is he's correcting a common flawed idea we have. Which is that when you're a person who follows this book, you're immune from suffering. Or when you're born in America, you're immune from suffering. And that's just not true. Paul's saying, I consider that our present sufferings, like these things are part of our life. They're going to happen. Jesus suffered. Judas died. Eleven disciples were left. John was exiled and died alone on an island called Patmos. The other ten disciples were all crucified or executed in heinous ways. And many of us who begin to follow Jesus, we get this misconception that suffering is somehow not going to be part of our life. Like we get out of what Jesus and his disciples experienced. And that's just not true. So how do you have perspective on suffering? Well, you, you adopt the view that Paul has, which says that the sufferings that I'm in right now, the pain that I'm facing, can't even compare with the glory that's going to be revealed one day. And it's so hard to maintain that perspective because disappointment distorts perspective. When you go through disappointment, it, it's kind of like when it, your, your perspective gets torqued a little bit. It gets shifted. It's hard to maintain that kind of perspective when you're going through pain, when you're going through loss. When you're in a place 
where you're grieving or you're suffering or you're, you're getting over a loss, you don't see the world as the world is. You see the world as you are. You see the world through the lens of your pain. And that's why perspective is so hard to hold on to when you're in pain. That's why sometimes, honestly, you shouldn't trust your emotions and feelings. They're real, but they're telling a story that isn't the full picture of reality. And what Paul is saying is that if you're going to have hope and sustained hope, you're going to have to tap into this perspective, this hope. Let me be clear on what hope is not, because I think sometimes we get hope confused with other words. Some of us hear hope and we think idealism. And idealism is a positive perspective based upon naivete. If you're an idealistic person, you need to get out more. Because you can't maintain idealism in the face of the world. Because it's based upon being naive. And I don't trust naive people. Because they don't know how things really are. I used to be an idealist. And then I had some life experiences that robbed me and disabused me of my idealism. Idealism is kind of natural for the early season in our life, but most of us lose it, not because we become angry and bitter and cynical. We just gain life experience. We no longer have naivete. Some of us confuse hope, not with idealism. We confuse hope with optimism. And optimism is a positive perspective based upon denial. Somebody goes, I'm just going to be optimistic. Well, what that typically means is I'm going to try to be positive and pretend this is not going on over here. I'm going to pretend this is not going to happen, and I'm going to pretend this is just going to go away if I ignore it. That's not hope. It's optimism. And that's also dangerous, because that isn't just going to magically go away. you got to deal with it. you got to address it. Hope, as we said earlier, is a confident expectation in Christ in the face of reality. And so our perspective as followers of Christ is not to ignore the brokenness in our world or to ignore the pain in our life, but to look to Christ and have an expectation in him and what he's going to do even as we face reality today. That's why hope is so powerful. Hope doesn't change the the things that you want to ignore. Hope doesn't change the things you wish you didn't know about. What hope does is it changes your perspective on those things. Hopeful people don't have different lives than unhopeful people. They just have chosen a different perspective on the exact same thing. And that's why perspective is so powerful. The second thing you're going to need if you're going to sustain hope is pain. It's surprising, I know. But in Romans 8, Paul continues with these words. He says, for creation waits with eager longing. We'll come back to that phrase. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, a couple things I want to capitalize on, and I've kind of highlighted those to remind myself. The first phrase here says, for the creation, and he's speaking of everything, is waiting with eager longing. And, and this section of the Bible was originally written in Greek. It was written to the Romans, and they spoke Greek in Rome. And so that phrase, eager longing, in Greek is a word picture, and it means on tiptoes. Like you're so longing to see that, that you're on tiptoes. And Paul is saying, creation is waiting For what on tiptoes? For the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is longing and hoping that God will do in humanity what creation hopes one day God will do in creation. Creation's longing for you and me to be revealed and transformed into who God made for us to be. Pretty cool idea. He also says that creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, I've not birthed any babies. I know you're surprised by this revelation this morning. But I was there for a couple births. And I was glad I was on that side of the table and not on the table. I don't think I would have done well on the table. I'm not sure I would have survived on the table, epidural or not. And what Paul is saying is that creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth for the process to be finished. This is a fascinating perspective he's giving us because he's saying that creation is actually sensing the thing that we all know, that we live in a broken world, that sin has corrupted our world, and that all of us are experiencing the consequences. He's saying creation is experiencing those consequences. He goes on to say, That not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. This phrase, first fruits, is a a, a phrase that comes from agriculture. If you were growing crops and preparing for a harvest, the very first harvest that came before the rest of your crops would give you an idea of how the whole harvest was going to be. The first fruits were like a sneak preview, like a trailer for a movie. I went to a movie yesterday. There was like 10 minutes of trailers. All of those trailers are previews of the movies that are coming later this year. All of those fruits that come in the beginning of the harvest are a preview of what's coming in the future from that harvest. And we get to experience a taste of what God's going to do one day in this glorious hope by how we experience the Holy Spirit today. The Holy Spirit is that preview, that that first fruit. And you say, Scott, why does this matter? Because as people who believe in this book, we have to right some wrongs. Some of the people who are least dishonoring to God's creation, sorry, most dishonoring to God's creation are the people who believe that God created it. We say stuff like, well, it's all going to burn anyway. It doesn't matter. Can you maintain that view in light of what we just read? No, no, God's goal for creation is not that it all burns. He says, but that 
creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's goal is not to destroy creation, but to redeem it and restore it and set it free. Even while right now it experiences pain. And the same thing for you and me. God's longing is for us to one day be set free and restored to everything that he intended us to be. Even while right now we go through pain. And that's good news. And if you go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 and you you read Revelation 22, you see the same story told again and again. Paul is saying, if you are going to sustain hope, you're going to have to face pain. The first book I had our elder board read when I came on staff here at Cornerstone was this book. It's called Leadership Pain, The Classroom for Growth. And the author, Samuel Chan, said this. He said, reluctance to face pain is your greatest limitation. There is no growth without change, no change without loss, and no loss without pain. Many of us long for growth and transformation. We want God to use us powerfully. We want our lives to count. We want our days to matter. We want to feel like there's a reason that we're here and that God is using us. Guess what? The only way you get to all of that is through pain. And that's not a fun message. Not one we like to hear. In his book, Chan boils down his his point in the book to a sentence. He repeats all throughout his book. He says, your capacity for growth is equal to your capacity for pain. If you're a leader in some context, your capacity to lead is equivalent to your capacity for pain. And many of us, when we've faced pain in our life, we've cut off our growth potential because we've decided we're done with pain. And I'll tell you, the longer and longer I lead and the larger and larger opportunities I get to lead, it's awesome, the opportunity, but guess what? The silent, unknown part of that journey is more leadership, more pain. Started out as a college intern with 50 college students. I didn't get any angry emails back then because they were college students. They didn't send email. I didn't have to manage a staff or think about a budget or navigate the complexities of a multi-generational church. All of those are opportunities and gifts, but they also involve pain. And you will only be able to sustain hope if you allow God to increase the level of pain you can endure. He says, perspective, pain, and then he says, patience. You can tell I'm channeling my Baptist roots today with the P's. Patience. In Romans 8, 24b, he begins by saying this. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. It's a good definition of hope, by the way, if you want a shorter one than mine. If you can see it, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If there's one quality our culture will not birth in you by itself, it's patience. Because we hate waiting. We hate waiting on everything. That's why Netflix is here. That's why Amazon Prime is here. That's why Uber is here. All of those companies, they're not selling you movies, books, 
or travel. They're, share, they're selling you the idea of waiting for less time. And every piece of technology that comes out in our world today, the goal is to increase the amount of things you can do and decrease the amount of time you have to wait. Question for you. How do you handle delays in your life? Most of us don't do good with delay. We kind of handle delay the way we do uh, air travel. You get a delay. Hey, guess what? I'm sorry, sir, but Atlanta airport is closed. Okay, send me through Chicago. Well, Chicago's closed. Send me through Dallas. Sir, I'm sorry, there's no more flights on Southwest. Well, then put me on Delta. Put me on United. Sir, there's no more flights anywhere. Well, then get me a rental car and I'll drive there myself. That's how most of us handle delay. We don't want to wait. And when we have to wait, some of us begin to believe that God is not as good as he said he was. And the reason why is because our hope wasn't in God's character. Our hope was in God's timing. Here's what I've learned. The strength of your hope is based upon the object of your hope. Many of us are coming to terms with a hope that's not strong and resilient. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you put your hope in the wrong thing or the wrong person. See, what crisis and disappointment reveals is it reveals the state and the object of our hope. If you put your hope in me, I promise you, I will disappoint you. If you put your hope in whoever is sitting in the Oval Office, I promise you will be disappointed because those people are not strong enough to sustain hope. Even when it comes to God, you're going to have to ask, am I putting my hope in God's character and his promise or am I putting my hope in his ability to live on my timeline? A big difference. Perspective, pain, patience, and then presence. Paul says we're going to need presence to sustain hope. And all of these are actually only possible in our lives if we have the presence of God. Romans eight twenty six begins like this. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we're going to need the presence of God to do any of this. This is why if you read the Bible and you try to do it in your own power and strength, I promise you, you're going to be massively frustrated. Because you weren't intended to, to do the things in this book in your own power and strength. You're going to need the Spirit to help you in your weakness. Now, some of us are okay with this idea that we have moments and times when we're weak. But that isn't what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our occasional weakness. No, he says, present tense helps us. Maybe a more literal translation of this is, the Holy Spirit continually helps us because we are continually weak. Now again, not a popular American idea that we are continually weak, but a biblical idea. The reason that Jesus had to come and die on the cross was not that we were in a moment of occasional weakness He came to die on the cross for us because we were continually weak. We would never have been able to do it on our own. 
And so what Paul is saying is that while you're waiting with patience, while you're experiencing pain, while you're trying to maintain your perspective, while you're facing disappointment, the Spirit is going to help you in your weakness. Live with hope. And you can exchange the disappointment that you feel for the hope that you hold on to, not in yourself, not in your circumstances, but in Christ. And right here, I have to, I have to make a little correction. And that correction is this. Many of us have heard people or said ourselves that our favorite verse in Scripture is, God won't give me more than I can handle. Here's the problem. It's not in here. It's in the same spot as uh, God helps those who help themselves. Benjamin Franklin. But there is a place where that verse comes from, that interpretation comes from, and it's 1 Corinthians 10.13. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, important word, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. So that ver- what that verse means is that when you are tempted, God is not going to let the temptation overwhelm you, but he's going to provide a way for you not to be overcome by that temptation. That does not mean that God is not going to introduce or allow circumstances in your life that you feel overwhelmed by. Because God will always give you more than you can handle because you were not meant to handle it alone. So when we say God is not going to give us more than we can handle, it's untrue if the we is us. But it is true that God won't give you more than we can handle if the we is this. But God will always be putting you in circumstances that you can't do without his presence because that's what happened every single time somebody was living who was writing this book. They were in the no circumstances that they could not have handled on their, on their own because they were not designed and we were not designed to live on our own. Number five, the fifth P is this. It's prayer. Prayer. We won't sustain hope without prayer. Now, if you're like me, the recovering cynic, you go, oh, of course, prayer. It's P. Had to throw it in there. But this is a very different vision of prayer than I think many of us have actually experienced Verse 26 continues, and Paul says, For we, when we're weak, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He says, And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The vision of prayer that Paul is talking about in disappointment and in our weakness is not nice, neat, safe church prayer. It's with groanings too deep for words. And Paul is giving us a vision of prayer that I think looks very different than our own. Question for you. Which of these two images more accurately describes your prayer life? A fancy dinner, or a cage fight. It's a, it's a bit light, but I think there's some truth to it. See, when I go to a fancy dinner, 
I'm worried. Did I wear the right clothes? Do I have any stains? Okay, sit at the table. My mom said no elbows on the table, so pull those off. Okay, which fork do I use? Which spoon do I use? Okay, how do I, how do I make the right friends? Okay, can't tell that joke. That's inappropriate. Stop being a mature, Scott. Be an adult, you know. And I'm thinking about all those things. And I'm not, not, not being myself. So many of us, when we pray, our prayers are formal and stiff and regimented and what we feel like we should be saying. When you're in disappointment, you don't have time for that. You could care less. You're just going to let it all out. You're going to scream at God. Some of you are going to cuss at God. You're going to call out to him. And you're going to have groanings that are too deep for words. And you're going to practice what the Bible calls lament. A lament is to mourn deeply or to express grief and sorrow. And 73 of the 150 psalms in the middle of your Bible, 49%, they fit this category. Psalm 23 is in there too. It isn't a lament, but it's actually not the norm for psalms. The majority of the Psalms are the Hebrew people, mostly David and others, crying out to God and in sometimes shaking their fist at him. Saying, God, where are you? God, do you see this? God, are you aware of what's going on in my world? God, have you taken a break? Are you busy somewhere else? Because this is what's going on. This is what's happening. This is wrong. This is not okay. I can't do anything about this. I'm completely overwhelmed. And if you don't get involved, I have no hope. That's the kind of prayer that sustains you with hope and disappointment. Not nice, neat, safe church prayer. The prayer that's too deep for words. And in that moment, as Romans 8, 27 says, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf because we no longer know how to pray. And that's why we have hope. That even when you can't pray, the Spirit's interceding for you. Even when you lost the words, God's praying that prayer for you. Even when you are in the pains of emotional childbirth, God is there with you. And if you continue to pour out your heart to him, he will hear you. That's why in Christ, we get to exchange our disappointment for hope. And not just a happy face, but true hope. Because we know that in the middle of real disappointment and pain, we can have hope because what we're in right now doesn't compare at all to what God's going to do one day. That's the hope we have. So this morning, before you leave, I want to give you some next steps to help you put this into practice. And the first one is this. We need to acknowledge our disappointment and ask God to restore our hope. Acknowledge our disappointment and ask God to restore our hope. As I said earlier, with my story of denial, it wasn't until I owned, yeah, this hurts, this stings, I'm in pain, I don't like this, this is not what I wanted, that God can actually heal. Because if you're going to deny it, God can't heal it. You have to own it and acknowledge that pain. And then, that's actually the easy part. Ask God to restore your hope. What that means is that you could get disappointed again. You have to decide, is it worth the risk or do I want to stay in denial 
and disappointment and cynicism and pain. See, what I didn't know is that when I was in that denial and even in that pain, in that circumstance, what God was opening up was exactly where I was supposed to be. Right here. But I couldn't see it. All I could see was my pain. And I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Even though the path to that was not a path I would have ever asked for. Number two, determine what's missing in your life. Determine what is missing in your life. If you picked up on it next to each of these words, there's been a little scale. And that scale is a zero to 10 scale. And what I want you to do today before you go to sleep is I want you to mark on that scale how you're doing with these things. Zero being it's never present. 10 being it's always present. And think about your life when it comes to disappointment and hope. How are these things present in your life? If you don't want to do it, just pass your paper to the person sitting next to you who you came with. I promise they could, they could probably pick a number. You might not like it, but they could pick a number. What, what the scriptures say is that these things are in our lives, not because we will them, but because they're products of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. And so as we hope in Christ and we're in him, he bursts these in us. And then number three, commit to a friend and point each other to hope. What I've found is that the hope we have is often a product of the relationships we're in. And as a recovering cynic, I can tell you that, that living around people and, and, and spending all of your time with and reading and listening to people who are cynics, guess what? You wake up one day and go, oh my gosh, I'm cynical. And if you need to be a person of hope, you're going to have to surround yourself with people and read and listen to hopeful voices. Before you tune me out and start thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, I want to share a quote with you. Because I've sat in church services, I know. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, said this. He said, every act of faith by every one of the people of God is like the tolling of a bell. And a faith like Job reverberates throughout the universe. What you and I forget is that when we're going through disappointment, we have an audience. People are watching us. People know that you were here today. That you're a follower of Jesus. That you're a Christian. And they don't really care that much how you're doing when things are going well. Of course you'd be happy. Of course you'd be joyful. Of course you'd praise God. You're in the middle of success. Your 401k is up. Your house is gaining value. You got a promotion at work. Your kids are perfect. But in the rest of the 99% of life, when those things don't happen, they want to see how you're going to respond. And when you choose in the midst of your pain and disappointment to respond with hope, a bell rings. When you choose perspective, not based upon your pain, but who God is, a bell rings. And that bell rings when you choose to pray an ugly prayer. That bell rings when you choose to endure the pain. That bell rings when you do it in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and not you. And that bell rings when you wait, not with impatience, but with hope. And as you endure disappointment, In the same way a bell rings in a church tower to call the people to worship, your life rings. 
situation you didn't want or ask for may be the exact environment God uses to A, bring you closer to him, and B, bring the people who are watching you into his presence. God can do in disappointment things that go beyond your wildest imagination if you will exchange your disappointment for hope in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.